This is a special edition of PFTPM. We're going to be talking to plenty of general managers throughout the NFL in the aftermath of the draft, as if they have nothing better to do now that the draft is over. The first victim this year is Bill's general manager, Brandon B. And hello, Brandon. How are you, pal? Mike, how you doing, buddy? Appreciate you having me on. Oh, I appreciate you doing it. And that's the thing. Like, the last thing you want to do is media. I appreciate you doing media the week after the draft. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> But don't you want just want to like go to the beach or something? I know the work doesn't end yet, but don't you feel like you deserve to do something other than work? I'm I'm ready to go to the golf course. I'm I'm getting my clubs out and uh, hopefully uh, maybe get to the course this weekend. What is the feeling that goes through your body once that last pick is made? I know you still have to go get the undrafted free agents, but still the draft is over. What's that experience like for you? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a sigh of relief. Uh, you know, you're kind of just like, all right. We, it's, it's been a long process and an 11 month process. I mean, we'll start here at the end of the month, you know, uh, even talking about next year's crop of guys at, at our Blesto meetings. But um, yeah, it's, it's a good time. You, you know, we, we kind of just uh, round up the draft room, pass out, you know, some cold ones and, and share some, some, some laughs of where we thought guys were going to go. And we get into a lot of arguments uh, during the process, you know, scouts kind of, they're convicted on, on where this guy will go or what his skill set is. And, uh, you get some funny moments, but uh, we kind of laugh at those and just enjoy that the draft's over. How closely do you pay attention to all the things that are said by your contemporaries or coaches with other teams as the draft approaches? Because the mandatory press conference happens. There's different media availabilities from February through late April. People say things. They don't say things. They have guys in for top 30 visits. They don't have guys in. Do you map all that out and pay close attention to kind of crack the code on, on who's covering up their intentions and who's maybe accidentally blurting out what they plan to do? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you get a feel for how teams operate and um, you know, if there's been a change at the top, you, you, you really watch, you know, some of those guys uh, versus, you know, if you're talking about Kevin Colbert, you know, who quite is retiring this weekend, but um Guys like that, they have, you know, Kevin's been there in charge for so long. You, you, you've known how they do business, but um, versus some of these new guys, even my guy, Joe Shane, that just, just went to the Giants. So he'll have his own way to do things. But we, we do try and track certain things and uh, see if there's trends in certain areas of, you know, if this guy goes to the pro day, you know, if, if, if is it the, the pro scouting or if they send their coordinator there or things like that. But um, ultimately, you never know because, they may have every intent to get the player, but someone beat them to it. What do you do after a given draft to go back and basically self-scout your department, yourself, things you've done, could have done differently, moves you could have made, moves you didn't make? How much time do you look back in the rearview mirror and how the draft went in an effort to improve it the next time around? Yeah, a lot of that um, now and even in the future, as far as uh, where we had grades, where guys went. Was it, you know, more of an anomaly that that team just had a, you know, a real need that they said they got to go get them. They didn't want to take a chance. Sometimes that happens, but you definitely do some recon there. Um, you know, you can, you can also look at trends in history. How many corners generally go in the first round or the first two rounds? How many, I mean, this year, six receivers went in a row. Like the, we're starting to see, you know, as the game is evolving and, and the receivers market's gone nuts this year. Anyway, we're starting to see more receivers going even higher when you didn't used to see that. It was more uh, quarterback, left tackle, pass rusher 
we're taking all those premium spots now receiver and, and to offset that corners as well. And it's a fascinating concept, especially because you're part of this conversation. You guys have a great receiver. You made the commitment to pay him market value to keep Stefan Diggs around, to keep him happy at a time when unhappy players are finding easier and easier paths out of town. How do you reconcile? Because you mentioned quarterbacks, tackles, pass rushers. You're not going to find great ones in the draft unless you earn one of the high picks and get it right. Mm -hmm. But with receivers, it's almost become like running backs. There's so many of them every year. But unlike running backs, veterans are getting paid a lot of money. How do you reconcile the urgency to pay a guy you have versus the reality that there's plenty of others out there and I can get a guy, take away the name, take away the jersey, take away what he's done. I can get a guy right out of school, a lot cheaper, lock him in. Why don't I do that? How do you resolve paying your guy versus rolling the dice on a new guy? Well, I think it's, uh, you got a proven product, a guy who's been in your building, who's got a a relationship with your quarterback. And ultimately you have to have a cutoff, you know, just like you do when you go in to buy a house, you're going, all right, we'd like to buy the house for this, uh, but we're walking away at this number. And you kind of set those parameters before you do a deal. And ultimately, you know, I think Steph and his agent did a, did, did a fair job of pointing out their points of even where the number two market has gone uh, to why the number one market should be. And, you know, Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams had gotten done before ours. So, but, you know, I just tried to envision, all right, if we, okay, we can either sign him to an extension, you know, maybe plays it out, but maybe there's, we have some issues with that down the line. Um, or we can go the route that some teams are choosing trade and redraft, but I just couldn't imagine where we're getting, what we were going to get to, um, to replace Steph in the sense of what he brings our offense. You know, he opens it up for Gabe Davis, for, for Dawson Knox and uh, some of the other guys that we have here. We're a different offense without Steph. And isn't that kind of what we're losing sight of with this idea that you could trade an accomplished receiver and just backfill with a first rounder? There's a presumption that that guy walks through the door and plays well. And we know from history, for every guy that works out really well, there's a guy that doesn't. It seems like a heck of a risk to me to say, we're going to let the bird in the hand go and just assume we're going to go grab another bird in the draft. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been around very many number one receivers. In Carolina, we had Steve Smith, um, and he was a clear number one. And when we got here, we were, we were truly – our offense hit another level when we got a true – number one guy. And to say that I'm definitely going to hit that in the draft where we've been drafting, um, you know, that just, that seemed like more of a, a, a risk I wasn't willing to take if we could get Steph done at a number that, that made sense for him and made sense for us, which fortunately we did. As media, we kick around ideas all the time about why there are so many great receivers today, but you're in a better position than I am to give me an assessment. Why is it that we've gotten to this point where every year there's so many great receivers in the draft? I think just the, the evolution of the game and the, the rules and, and these uh, the seven on sevens starting. I mean, Mike, you know it. You know, I know he's growing up. You know, if if you threw the ball in junior high three times a game, you guys were airing it out. It was air Coriel. Um, you know, it's just, you know, nowadays you go watch Pop Warner football. And these kids are throwing the ball in Pop Warner football. And um, you got seven on seven camps. I got 
I just had one graduate high school a year ago. I got another one in high school now. And that's what is coming up for them in the, in the summer is seven on seven camp. So you're seeing more quarterbacks that are coming in with the tools. And then you just got all these receivers, four wide, five wide. So more guys are getting chances to play and show their skill set. It's going to the college game, which ultimately is working, worked its way into our, our league in the NFL. Something I haven't thought of until we had this conversation, because I've talked about the seven on seven before. So I'm somewhat relieved that we're on the same page that, that I've got that part of it figured out. But what about the defensive backs? Is it that the best athletes are now being attracted to the receiver position and not playing DB? Because you would think that if there's more guys running pass routes and catching passes than seven on sevens, more opportunities for guys to learn how to cover them. But we don't see the same increase in great defensive backs coming into the draft that we see in receivers. Yeah, and I think that's why there's still a premium on that corner position because it's, it's, it's hard to find. And, and the rules of the game are so pro receiver. I mean, you, if, if the same contact is going on offense to a defender, it gets let go that many times it's called, you know, either illegal contact or pass interference on the defender. So playing defense in, in our game is, is harder than ever, especially defensive back, just the way the rules are. And uh, again, I think guys like scoring touchdowns versus being scored on, Guys are naturally going to go. You hear it all the time. I mean, uh, Trayvon Diggs, Steph's brother, went to Alabama as a receiver, and they thought, man, this guy this guy would be a big, good-looking corner. We think that's his, his long-term play, and uh, he's had a heck of a start in Dallas. You've been with the Bills for five years now. I mean, that's blink-of-an-eye type stuff. From my perspective, it's got to be from yours. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in your five years on the job? You know, just um, – expect the unexpected. I mean, you, we all know how to scout and, and do those things. And I can run the, the, the cap and, and run the day to day operation, but Mike, you come in here, it's, there's, you're doing things for a third to half of the day, almost all the time that you had no idea when you woke up that morning, you're just, you're, you're constantly dealing, whether it's an agent calling you that something's, something's going on, something's brewing in the media. Uh, you got a player that's dealing with a crisis at home, um, you know, somebody's been in, in trouble or dealing with it. You just, you got a full staff of people um, between our trainers, uh, our scouts, all the people in our front office, our equipment guys. You got a lot of people that life happens and you, and you got to help them deal through it. So I think those are the things that you're always, there's no playbook for some of the things that you run across. Um, you know, the anthem issues that we had and just, um, the, all the various things that come up on your plate with how to deal with, there's no, there's no playbook. I, there is a playbook for how to scout, for how to, you know, how to do your salary cap, how to do staff contracts, things like that. There's not for some of the things that, that we get thrown when we walk in the door. You mentioned Kevin Colbert earlier. He's retiring after a great one with the Steelers. And I did a little research on his background over the weekend. He's not the kind of guy that's going to talk much about his background unless you ask him about it, but he's been a, college baseball coach in two different places did some different things before he ended up in football I'm curious about you Brandon when did you find your way into football and what was it that drew you there yeah I mean uh Mike I grew up playing football uh when my parents let me at eight years old and so I played tack we didn't have flag football where I grew up so it was tackle football through high school unfortunately I tore my ACL my senior year and um I went to college and just decided it was trying to I was going to be a coach and that was my plan was I was going to go to college and then just coach somewhere I'd um what happened was my senior year when I tore it in football it knocked me out of basketball so the athletic director hired me to be the junior high boys basketball coach he knew 
Um, I would love to be around the game since I couldn't play. And that kind of turned my head on to being a coach, but went to college and talked to people and, and decided I wanted to try to get into a front office and, you know, took a four week summer internship and in, in with the Carolina Panthers as a PR media intern and um, went home for a week or two. And then I wanted to get into football operations. The guy that was the intern for that season left and they called me and that was Dom Capers last year in Carolina. Uh, I was a season intern. Unfortunately, Dom got fired. I thought, oh man, all the good things I've done are out the window, but Marty Herney takes over and uh, George Seifert comes in and that's, that's kind of how I got in and just, I learned a lot from, from Marty. And, and then when Marty got let go, Dave Gettleman comes in worked with him for a few years. And fortunately I got this opportunity here in, in Buffalo. Let me pivot to something that I know you've talked about several times and you probably not rather talk about again, but I think it's important because we've seen organizations in recent years get scarred by big moments in the postseason, whether it was the Seahawks in Super Bowl 49 with the pass instead of the run at the end of the game, the 28 to three lead by the Falcons that was blown. And I feel like both of those organizations struggled in very different ways to put that behind them. What have you done to put the playoff loss behind you? And, and how confident are you that when it's time to get going with the 2022 season, it's not going to be something that, that causes any lingering issues for the locker room, for the coaching staff, for the front office, for anyone? Yeah, I think you have to have honest, open conversations. And, and just like we dissect the draft, like we were talking about, you know, go back and dissect uh, the finish of that game in regulation and and then overtime, and you have to be honest. And and if you made a mistake in that process, whether it was a play call, whether it was a player, um, whatever your role in it was, you got to own up to it. And I think that's been the the process. It's hard because it's an abrupt end, and and you go through that. But um, open, honest dialogue, and how what what are we taking from this? You got to learn from it, or you're going to repeat it. And um, I think our culture is strong here, Mike. Those things can cause issues. There's, there's no doubt you'd be, you've pointed out some places that may not have recovered. But uh, we feel, you know, with Josh Allen, Josh is just one of those guys. He's, you know, obviously he played very well in that game. But, um, you know, he's got the mindset that, you know, we're not going to let that bother us. Uh, you bring in a guy like Vaughn Miller who just won the Super Bowl, who's won two Super Bowls, beat us in when I was in Carolina in, in the Denver one. But, um, you know, you try and add some pieces of guys that can instill confidence, different viewpoints. Um, and last year was last year. You know, only one team is going to be happy at the end of the year, in my mind. You either win it or you don't. We had our opportunities. We had our opportunities the year before, in Kansas, and we didn't do it, and we came back. So new year, new team, new season, and, and we're excited about where we're at. Most coaches and general managers would say if you let them pick their schedule, every game would be Sunday at one o'clock Eastern and, and every game would be at home too, but you know, they can't have that. <laughs> but the starting time is the same. The schedule is the same. Everything's the same. You're going to be one of the teams undoubtedly this year that's all over the map, prime time, different days, et cetera. When the schedule comes out on May 12th, what's the first thing you're going to look for? Oh, week one. Where, where, where does it start? Um, you know, are you home? Are you away? Is it, is it Sunday at one? Is it a prime time start? Uh, is it a division team? You know, those are always, uh, gonna, you know, our division's gotten very competitive uh, from the soft, the offseason moves those three teams have made. So uh, I always look week one, um, where are our division games? And then the finish, you know, are we finishing with two on the road? 
two at home. Uh, what does it look like? What are what are our weather games potentially going to be? And just um, that's kind of how I break it down. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of see where it goes. We're excited for for what's, you know, what's in store. Would you rather be home or away week one? You know, um, I, I don't really care too much. You got to play them all. So I'm fine, to be honest with you. I'm fine either way. I just I just want to make sure we play well, Mike. <laughs> well, you've played very well. The team's done great in recent years, and it feels like Diero continues to point straight up. We wish you all the best this season, Brandon. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Congratulations on the great draft. We'll talk to you again down the road. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you.